The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Megan Keoghan, Head of Content Partnerships here at Provoke and host of today's episode. Changes to the way media is monetized is transforming the industry landscape as we know it. Lines between earned, owned, and paid media are blurring, as are the lines between journalist, editor, analyst, and creative. What does this mean for PR and communications professionals? With us today is Alex Wolf, Principal Analyst at Broadsheet Communications and author of The State of Media Report, the latest industry report from Broadsheet. Welcome. Thanks, Megan. Really glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Alex, tell me, like, let's just start from the very beginning, 101 here. What does an analyst do at a PR firm? Um, it, in the case of my analyst role at Broadsheet, um, the, the quick answer is we, we're figuring it out all the time. <laughs> but uh, th- it's a role that um, I stepped into and sort of helped to create um, with the founder of the agency, Ben Billingsley. Um, and I was a, you know, sort of traditional comms guy. I was running accounts like um, probably a lot of the listeners of the podcast and, you know, had had clients, ran the engagements, weekly status calls and all that. But uh, Broadsheet's sort of unique in that we are um, a boutique agency that's very um focused on a specific industry segment. We're, we're category experts, if you will, in ad tech, martech, um, digital media and data. And so we found that having worked in this segment for a, a long time and, and gotten to know a lot of the big players, the agency had accumul- was accumulating a lot of institutional knowledge and intelligence about what was going on in the space. And um, the role of analysts is to really formalize that into something like a service offering, not just for our clients, but also internally. Um, It's a way for us to syndicate and um, share that intelligence that we're gathering in specific accounts, right? Um, Uh I function as sort of a a, a central clearinghouse for all that stuff. And I make sure that everybody in our agency benefits from all the stuff that we learn from our clients. The other thing we do is write these reports, which is the one you referenced, um, State of Media Report. And that is something that um, is, you know, the sort of outward facing version of this. And we essentially taking on the the challenge and the responsibility of analyzing the space that we're in, that our clients are in, um, and uh, publishing on it sort of the way that a um, analyst would, or that a maybe an editor would, um, looking at it holistically and trying to understand where we fit within it, but also, of course, where each of our clients fit in it. Um, all of that is stuff that just sort of, you know, again, is formalized versions of stuff we were doing already, like doing messaging work, doing positioning work for our clients. You know, we always had to develop a point of view on what was really going on, what the secular trends were, um, what the consequences of those trends were. And so doing that over and over again with really smart clients um, just felt like we were missing the opportunity to really centralize all of that um, and you know make it part of uh, how we do what we do. Absolutely. Well, we're going to get into this podcast here in a moment, or in, we're in the podcast, but we're going to get yeah. into the report in a moment. And I think, you know, what we're going to find here is a a little bit of 
how broad she came to producing this media report is in fact sort of what the report is finding across the industry is what does this mean for agencies? What does this mean for PR professionals, comms, this space of needing to become experts in many, many categories or the value add across the board. So I know that we've, you you know, this is a a pretty cool report. Also, I believe people can download this on the broadsheet website if they're interested to follow along with us. But um, will you take us from the top? The, we look at a pretty big uh, infographic, right? When we open, which, which unpacks a bit about, you know, like lays out the groundwork here. And I think it's really interesting for us to go into that as we sort of start unpacking the takeaways. We call it our map of data-driven media. Um, It's a, you know, within the ad tech and martech and digital publishing data space, you know, whether it's from the analyst shops themselves, or in our case, like from different thought leaders, some, some like editors, also some banks, like some VCs, you know, there's all these industry maps, quadrants, waves, clusters, whatever. And it's almost, a, you know, almost like a rite of passage in our, our segment uh, is getting confused by one of these things. <laughs> um, I know ad tech and martech isn't unique in uh, having its own jargon and vernacular, but I, ha- I have to believe it's a little worse than in other places. I mean, just like the litany of uh, TLAs, three-letter acronyms, like CDPs, SSPs, DSPs, that it's confusing even for the people in the space. Um, definitely confusing for people who start out at our agency and are kind of on a learning curve, um, but even confusing to us. So we set about kind of creating our own industry map that we we felt would clarify things and really help mm-hmm. Um, show not just the companies in an industry, you know, logos and things like that, but the actual relationship between these stakeholders. How does value move through the industry and through each of these companies? And by value, um, really two things, money, (laughs) who gets paid, who's taken a tax along the way, Um, but also data as we... um, it is the data-driven media. And it's one of the things that's changing the most about the landscape. And I know we'll get into those changes, but where does the data come from? Uh, where, do, At what point do um, people provide consent for the use of their data? And then who uses it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and how does that data flow through the ecosystem? So, you know, at the risk of talking on a podcast about something that is extremely visual and that almost had to be visual in order to get it right. Um, you'll see this circuit. So money is going up on the right side, data is coming down on the left side, and there's a bunch of different categories in between, but it's really showing how advertising demand, which is to say media dollars mm-hmm. uh, that go into publishers, which is most of publisher revenues or subscription revenues, things like that. How, how does that money flow through? Um, who who gets it at what point? Where's the mm-hmm. value at at each of those stages? But also how does data populate from you, yeah. the consumer, and what you're doing online? Where where does yeah. that influence the, the transactions? Um, I think it's, it's such an interesting way to think about sort of like the fiscal cycle, 
if you will, or life cycle uh, at a media company. And I think back to, uh, and what will probably date myself a little bit, like 10 years ago in grad school when we were, you know, first kind of getting into like the space of Google Analytics and understanding like paywalls and things of that nature. Uh, I had a professor say, like warn us or caution us that nothing is ever free on the internet. We talked a lot about how you pay in the price of your data, you pay in the uh, means of cookies you've paid through, uh, you know, demographic info that you can pinpoint where somebody is geographically. All of these factors have always been a form of payment. And now we're kind of looking at data alongside the money, the yeah. money cycle. Uh, if you and I, I think that to, the, to modify just a little bit, right. Mm -hmm. I think not so much payment, but exchange. Yes. Um, and because it's not always money to your point that is being transacted. I think, you know, most of us are used to a, a value exchange, which is um, free content in exchange for advertising. Mm -hmm. And I think, to be honest, very few of us recognize that that's what's going on, um, yeah. that, that we are participating as consumers in an exchange in which we're providing our attention to a brand, you know, yeah. up for auction to, to advertisers in exchange for free content. But there are other exchanges yeah. as well. Who do we provide our data to? And mm -hmm. for what reason? What do we get in return? Um, but also, you know, a paywall, a subscription, for example, is a value exchange that's yeah. also a financial exchange. I'm buying your content. You give me content in exchange for money. All the stuff that might seem pretty arcane about our universe and ad tech and martech, and it trust me, it, it is. <laughs> um, it all comes down to who gets what for what. Um, you know, and I think when we look at the changes in the marketplace, particularly around data privacy and that whole knot of mm -hmm. tangled questions around it, um, it does help to zoom out and say, and look at it in terms of data in exchange for what money in exchange right. for what, and who gets to make that decision? Uh, what, what do you expect as a consumer and what are, uh, in terms of being able to make that decision, what options do you deserve? Mm -hmm. And if you're a company on the other side of it, what are the expectations for reasonable, responsible use of that data? And are you providing enough in exchange for it? Right. So the, we hope that this like graphic doesn't just add to the litany of other like uh, flowcharts and infographics and industry map cluster yeah. thingies, um, uh, each of which has their place. But I, ours is something that we use internally as a way to understand where does this client fit in? Um, mm -hmm. And also to help those clients. I mean, we use this. We sit down when we do messaging work and say, where, where do you guys feel you've fit into this. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a good tool for that, for that purpose. Um, yeah. It has practical application for us. Sure. And when we, so we'll, we'll also have this up on the website with our, our little write-up so people can kind of reference it side by side as they're listening. But um, with that basis, what does that mean for sort of like the new, this new forefront we're on with? Um, I know we talked a lot about like this fragmentation of the media mm -hmm. leading to what happens when cookies go away and, and where do we go? If we've like just seemingly mastered this moment, who's going to, 
guide us through the next and, and how do we prepare for the next? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to, so we'll get into fragmentation, but I think the, the I think you read it in the intro, um, you know, the, the way that media is monetized, right? The way that, in other words, publishers sell or content creators mm-hmm. make money um, is, has a great deal of bearing over the comms profession because at the end of the day, earned media presumes you know, a healthy and solvent ecosystem of, of publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything that changes in their ability um, to make money uh, and, and the ways that they're incentivized to relate to their customer base, you know, that's going to change the way that media works as comms professionals. Where does influence come from? Who shapes the discourse? What kinds of content, what kind of hits matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something that you know, that's all changing because of things like cookies and things like uh, GDPR and CCPA and things that might seem, again, kind of like specialized to this Mm -hmm. little universe of ad tech and martech. But if you zoom out, it's really about how is the media going to structure, be structured? Um, And we as comms professionals, I think, are very interested in that question. So, right. so that's, that's the broader context in which we sort of did this analysis and we did it, this whole map all as a way to say, here's how the industry functions. Yeah. The other purpose of the report is to look at how it's actually functioning right now. And maybe more interestingly, how it's not functioning. And fragmentation is kind of another umbrella concept that speaks to the media ecosystem today and the changes that are coming that are that are uh, characterizing today. So fragmentation, we, we identify a few different layers of fragmentation. These might be a little more familiar to anyone who's in <laughs> our space, but again, to to widen it out, um, I think put yourself in the shoes of an advertiser. Um, again, advertisers supply the money that keeps the media ecosystem alive. It's, it's why we have journalists mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. I mean, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there are subscription revenues, but even those. Um, so you're an advertiser. Uh, a lot of advertisers are, are spending money um, across an increasingly fragmented landscape. So they've actually, in order to reach their customers, advertisers these days are, hitting social media, they're hitting search, but they're also doing CTV. They're doing linear TV. They're doing podcasts and, ter- and terrestrial radio. They're doing out of home, digital out of home. They're doing direct mail. Um, there's a proliferation, in other words, of channels. And the the difficulty is they don't really talk to each other. So an advertiser, it's it's getting more and more, like the more channels there are, the more omni-channel the customer is, right? And think about it. We are. We've got, I could probably pull right now several screens, right? Yeah. I've got my phone. I got TV downstairs. I'm on several different browsers. I'm in different platforms, different apps. Yeah. Reaching me, the consumer requires managing a bunch of different channels. And yeah. they don't talk to each other. When the ads don't, you can't put the same ad into all of them when you have to measure them differently, when the data you get back is sometimes different or completely not at all, there are blind spots. 
the work of advertising and reaching the customer is become more challenging because of that kind of fragmentation. Right. Um, the other kind of fragmentation that I think merits like, you know, a little attention is the, what, you know, signal fragmentation. So advertisers targeting their media, right. They want to target and personalize every ad ads work better when they're personalized and targeted. Um, and the mechanisms by which they've targeted those ads are, for example, third-party cookies, um, third-party browser cookies. Um, sometimes the, there's a lot of cookies out there. <laughs> it's only the third-party browser cookie that uh, is generally being referenced when you hear about yeah. the death of cookies. Um, so cookies are still around today at this very moment. Um, they have been... The Safari browser has for now a little while not supported them by default. And Google really kind of has the market share. They still support it, but have been signaling to the market that they're going to pull back yeah. from things and no longer um, support them by default. And so the industry has been getting ready to lose this key linkage of the cookie that guides a majority of all the ad dollars that flow into the ecosystem, which again are the dollars that pay a journalist's salary. So mm -hmm. losing cookies is real impact for publishers. I mean, Google itself estimates that it would represent something like a 50% reduction in CPMs, which is the price that you can charge for advertising inventory. It basically means they're cutting revenue in half because advertisers won't be able to target with the same accuracy and precision. Now, everybody knows this is not chill yeah. <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and so there, there's this rise in new identifiers, new linkages, if you will, new ways to target people and, and make sure that your advertising spend is going to the right places. But that's fragmented as well. Yeah. There's all these different IDs. There's all these different data signals. So now again, before for brands, third-party cookies, and I should also mention mobile IDs, mobile identifiers for mobile ads. Those actually, um, Apple pulled support for those a couple of years ago. Oh, um, don't quote me on that exactly. <laughs> it's kind of a stage thing, but it, it, you know, you look at Facebook stock going down. One of the big reasons Facebook is, is, um, hitting on, on tough times, yes, because the metaverse is a little like, what is the metaverse? But also because, really because of um, the impact that losing mobile ad IDs has had on their business. It's made it harder yeah. for advertisers to target on mobile. It means that those who are um, relying on targeted mobile advertising for revenue have lost money. It's not just Facebook. It's, you know, Facebook's kind of a, dumb poster child for this because they've they're a very big company but you have to also think about the independent publisher the the you know your local news outlet losing cookies and losing mobile ad ids is a big big almost existential business crisis for publishers and it's something that's been kind of bubbling around for a while we're seeing it accelerate cookies are scheduled to be uh fully deprecated off of chrome um by um, the end of 24, that deadline has moved a few times. But <laughs> when we think about fragmentation, 
it's all of the additional complexity that comes that that faces a brand who's trying to reach their customer today and the impact that that's going to have on the publishers who rely on ad dollars to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. So I'll pause there. I know it's a pretty long thing, but it's an example of kind of, of how we, you know, some of these arcane things like mobile ad ideas or whatever roll up to consequences that are, are relevant for comms professionals well outside of our little corner of the, the yeah. industry. Well, to, and to summarize, it sounds like, um, and I think we're all like kind of experiencing this, that there's about to be a real sort of upheaval in the playing field, if you will, where uh, a big publisher that has run its, I don't hate to say like monopoly, but it, it's dominance because it's got the history and the, the, like ad demographic insights from decades, if you will, is now playing against a smaller publication that maybe has a a much smaller audience or footprint, but higher quality engagements. So things like high open rates on newsletters or um, maybe even going back to looking at like what's the engagement or the the share rate on our social media or... Mm-hmm. These things that are much more tangible, much more anecdotal, like where we know that there's impact that can be seen is going to have a greater value. And and we've always kind of known that that's more important in terms of influence, but it's always been much harder to make that way equal. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's happening is, um, you know, when you lose third party cookies, so one of the main incentives for a publisher is to develop a, and and to fortify the direct relationship they have with their audience. So, you know, you'll still be able to target media, but it's the more data and information um, that the publisher themselves gets directly from their customer base. Um, for example, a registration wall, you know, you're seeing this all uh, more and more of these, you know, please register to read this article. That is a value exchange, right? In which the you are providing information to the publisher that, you know, they can use to help target media on their site, among other things. Um, to get more directly to your point, I mean, w- publishers, it's not just scale anymore, but publishers that have direct relationships with their own audience that are, um, you know, where that audience is engaged and where there's a quality of engagement, mm-hmm. it, it will be, I think, easier for those publishers to, you know, be seen as a valuable destination for advertising um, because, you know, it's, they get to actually, what, what they do well is a more competitive asset without cookies right. than it was before. Can I At ask the same it? time... Oh, Sorry. go ahead. No, no, no. finish your thought and then I'll ask my question. We're good. <laughs> One of the things that you see is that publishers sort of p- pivoting away from advertising altogether, right? Yeah. So th- this has been a trend that's gone on for a long time. Um, New York Times was sort of the first successful paywall or one of the first. Um, mm-hmm. The Wall Street Journal, you know, we, we as an agency worked with Bloomberg to help launch their paywall um, a few years ago. 
And that's viable for really high-end publishers that can really deliver, that can command mm-hmm. a subscription. Like, yeah. for example, The Information, which is a, a uh, publication out of San Francisco, you know, great reporting, very intensive, very expert in their segment on, on venture capital and tech. You know, that's an expensive subscription, but they command that value. The trouble is, is that paywalls are not really viable for the majority of publishers. There's a select few at the top that can really do it. But as we all know, when it comes to like our streaming subscriptions, there's only so many mm-hmm. of those things that we can really afford or really get value from. And so there's a ceiling to how much of the media ecosystem can transla- transition away from ads altogether. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a false promise. Some people look at paywalls and say, well, that makes more sense. Apple and, and a lot of its posturing toward the industry encourage subscriptions instead of ads. It's just not something that a lot, every publisher or every content provider can pull off. And what it really means is, you know, what happens in advertising matters. What happens in ad tech matters, not just to the ad tech, martech publishing industry, advertising industry. In other words, not just to us. These changes that are coming to advertising, there's there's no way out. There's changes no are coming out. to advertising, but it's also going to change how we as consumers are able to consume news because we're going to see these niche, more niche publications because they have to differentiate in the playing field to have that like tighter, more defined audience. Uh, And I think also, I am really curious to get your opinion on um, like what this moment will look like when the day cookies go away before at like before advertising budgets have shifted. Because we all know like in creating a media plan or building out a, a campaign proposal, your CPM are driven by the volume that you can put into display or programmatic. It's the cost of those high touch engagements, branded content or experiential or, uh, you know, activations that are, are in person and target a much smaller group of people. If we were ever to have to put a CPM against those opportunities alone without programmatic or display ads in the mix, no, no deal would ever be competitive. So it's going to like, it's going to be a really interesting moment. And I'm just, I'm almost just interested in your, your opinion as somebody who's been immersed in this for a while, what is that moment going to look like? Who will, who will become the winner in it? Who loses, right? Like, is it, is it the consumer that loses? Is it the big publisher that loses? Is it the agency that loses? What player in that will have to adapt? And and if we're looking at for like the PR and comms folks who are listening today, if they're going to get one leg up or if they're going to do one smart thing today that will set them up for that fateful day in 2024, what is it that's going to, going to set a, a publisher apart? Hmm. How do you be competitive or how will we be competitive? So I, there's a, a few correct answers to the question, all of which <laughs> each other. Um, l- let me take one stab at it. Uh, 
and first <laughs> say that in smart opinion on this is not even entirely certain that cookies will go away. Um, Fair enough. I, I mean, if we're going to say yeah. we are going to look at this as a hypothetical. No, no. I, one I, I scenario we yes could all be prepared for. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, it's it's a question that everybody's been asking themselves in this industry, right? And um, so there's, but anyway, there's an argument that it might not happen. Let's assume it does. The industry is totally unprepared <laughs> in, in so many different ways. I mean, part of it is that there are all these alternatives, right, to, to relying on cookies or, and it's not just cookies, but let's say the old yeah. way of doing things. Um, but nobody has really experimented with them at the scale and volume required yeah. to know which one is going to work. And you think of why, I mean, it's because everybody's really focused on short-term gains. A lot of CMOs, as the economy started to like get a little darker toward, you know, this year, um, they were told, okay, well, some of that experimental stuff you're doing with universal ID or contextual or, um, you know, new mechanisms for targeting, forget it. We have cookies right now. We need to sell product. We need revenue. Experimental budgets are out the door. Yeah. So, you know, if th this whole, what do we do after cookies? It's been discussed ad nauseum in our space for like five, six years running. It's so old news. We're all sick of it. And it hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> And despite all of this, the real in-market adoption around alternatives is still pretty slow. Mm -hmm. So it, it it's going to be um, jarring, I, I believe. Um, and the consequences are pretty severe. I mean, I think that the, the most recent and comparable case study really is looking at mobile ad IDs and what's happened since then, because they, they did go away. Mm -hmm. um, for iPhones, at least, and that's a lot of mobile phones, and th their impacts are very real. I mean, publisher revenues are down. You, you know, Facebook again is a very public example of what happens. You know, you can charge less because it's less targetable. The measurement you can offer against it is not as you know um, direct or clear. Mm -hmm. And advertisers will go to where they can target their media. Mm -hmm. So. You know, if I knew the precise answer to that question, uh, <laughs> you know, but we, the, we wouldn't even be here having this podcast, I think is what it I is. Might, who knows? <laughs> what do publishers do though? Well, okay. Uh, go back to that value exchange, yeah. right? Publishers want to maintain the premium on their inventory, which is going to come from how addressable that inventory is. Mm -hmm. Addressability means can you target it essentially, you know, yeah. how, how, how precise can I be in targeting individuals, households, what have you within your audience? How much, in other words, do you know about them? Yeah. Which is also a question of how much did they tell you about themselves? Which is a question of what did you give them in exchange for telling you? Why did they tell you? Mm. Publishers, it's, you know, this whole transition from away from cookies and toward what's called first party data, you know, the data the publishers own yeah. is 
not just changing the publishers you've heard about before, but it's kind of changing what a publisher, you know, what we understand a publisher to be. Something that we've seen a huge, as a huge trend is retail media networks. And that's basically retailers realizing, wait, we deal with human beings, customers all day. Yeah, uh, We're part of this value exchange with them. We have data on what they're buying on, on, you know, all this, what they're considering and that data all of a sudden, oh wait, that's really valuable to media. Yeah. So, you know, Target, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Kroger, um, are media companies now. And this is happening rapidly. Um, Instacart, you know, you name it. Um, pretty much any company that maintains a direct um, and engaging relationship with mm-hmm with consumers and collects that data anywhere where you fill out that form and give them your email and then indicate things about your, you know, interests or mm-hmm. in more controversial cases and about your location, for example, you know, that is the data that will replace the cookie. Mm-hmm. So publishers, you know, the traditional content producers, yeah. some of them have that, that channel, but they're going to be competing against companies that you never thought of as being in the media business, because all of a sudden it's that direct relationship with people that really matters. Yeah. Yeah. So something that a comms professional is already quite poised to be, because we already know that relationships have a great value and um, have been, we've been investing in those sorts of, you know, uh, brand perception, brand reputation, uh, the general recallability of a brand, all of these things that have kind of surrounded the advertising or supported it in maybe some of the less monetizable or um, measurable, I should say, less measurable ways are really going to be quite critical. And it, it, it is interesting to think about what sorts of metrics we might put around. You know, we've started to talk metrics around ESG and CSR and those sorts of things, mm-hmm. but what kind of metrics might PR agencies be putting around some of their value add offerings? It'll always be imperfect. I mean, every PR firm knows that quantifying the value we provide is tough. Yeah. Um, and usually when you're in the asked to do that, it's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I will say is, you know, I think what we've learned as a, just in our own example about how we're responding to a lot of these things, um, you know, f- first off is I think understanding your client's business, right. Um, and then under, and then working with your client to form a point of view on the industry. Um, th- it's that work that kind of gave us, the all the all the learnings that we needed mm. to really have our own point of view and we we benefit from being in a specific segment so if you're a generalist agency this is different a little bit yeah. harder but what we found is that when we really leaned into messaging positioning right strategy yeah then having that foundation with our clients where we are challenging them. We're also giving them information that, and perspective that they didn't necessarily have about their own segment. Mm-hmm. 
where we're showing up to them, not asking them for materials, but showing up with materials and asking for their response. That foundation has, you know, given us the opportunity to increasingly extend our services into areas that were not traditionally considered PR. I'm an analyst. Is that analyst relations now? Or yeah. is it, you know, um, we do more and more branding, um, messaging, positioning work. Sometimes that's a separate service, you know, strategic mm-hmm. stuff. Um, we are effectively a content marketing company as well. Uh, you know, we run content campaigns. We're just increasingly agnostic or, or you know, um, neutral toward yeah. whether it's earned, owned or paid. And we're even running more um, paid campaigns for our clients, not buying display ads, but when it comes to content buys and some of the stuff that you've done, Megan, uh, on the publisher side, right? Um, Rather than all of that being across separate fragmented agencies, we find that we at Broadsheet are able to take on more of that work. Our clients want us to because we've, basically led with intelligence um, and led with analysis and analytical products um, as a way to anchor that engagement. Because when you really have a key role to play in what what we're going to say, Mm -hmm. you know, handling just earned media doesn't make sense. It makes sense for you to be involved across the whole integrated marketing thing so i guess a takeaway for other agencies would be just from our experience really lean into um if you you are in a boutique category or or, or a specific segment really lean into your category expertise that's been a big thing for us that's that's why i have my role um but if even if you're in a, a generalist thing um look at uh earned owned and paid you know uh i think and agnostic way the other thing i'd say is understand that the influence is no longer just coming from um journalists or or editors i mean we all know there are influencers and that there's social media narratives but i'm thinking more in particular you know one of the consequences of the changes in media monetization is more and more journalists are just starting their own sub stacks right so that's a subscription model right? Instead of advertising. So they may have been getting their checks at, you know, uh, a traditional publisher that's supported by ads. Those businesses aren't doing great. Can't pay journalists enough. And by the way, they are not paid enough. The, that sucks, but I have a, I have a thousand um, really passionate followers and each of them is willing to pay 10 bucks a month, you know, and all of a sudden you've got a livelihood. So the Substack is, you know, now where a lot of really smart journalists and editors are doing some of the best work. Um, it's not a scaled thing. It's not public. It's behind paywall. It's not even, you know, it may not even have a, a link to it, but that might be the best place for your client's message. Mm-hmm. You know, the truth is that there's less and less room for tier two, tier three publications out there. So coverage, as we traditionally think of it as comms professionals, 
Of course, we always want a tier one. Most of us usually settle for tier two or two, three. Um, there's just less of those publications. At yeah. the same time, more people are spending time on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So, you know, does that channel, which used to not be earned, but does that now the best way for your client to get his or her message across? It might be. Yeah. So when you're adding value at the level of the message, the analysis, you, you are, I think, as a PR agency, more free to explore in a rational way with your client what makes sense without having to always represent just earned media. Mm-hmm. You, you can ask yourself and really be able to answer collaboratively with your client, even experimentally with your client. Where, where, what makes sense for this, for this, <laughs> whatever it is. I think you've, uh, you've brought us pretty full circle here uh, in that broadsheet in many ways is doing practicing what it preaches um, or what it's, you know, what it's learned in this report. Um, and I think uh, it's just, it's, it's a cool moment for the content that matters, content with depth, engagements, relationships to really have the value that they've, they've always carried actually accepted. I think you just said it perfectly. And maybe this is like a perfect conclusion. (laughs) Uh, It's about quality. Mm -hmm. It's about quality for the publishers. It's about quality for the comms people. Um, And, you know, the, the sort of volume based ethos to the industry, there's always room tactically for, you know, volume. Um, but I think the incentives for everyone in the media ecosystem are to your point, Megan, going to be more driven around quality, quality content, quality ads, you know, quality people. Absolutely. Well, Alex, this has been a really delightful conversation. We've learned a lot, talked a lot about the future of media, which is always, always an intriguing topic and always many uh, hypotheses and perspectives and possibilities uh, that lie within uh, any analysis of the media, the state of the industry. So thank you for sharing yours. Thank you for um, the work that Broadsheet has done in preparing this uh, report that is accessible to anybody who wants to to dig in and learn a little bit more. Um but really, really, this has been so great. And and just, you know, if you have any parting thoughts, Alex, we'd love to hear them. Um, yeah. Ah, parting thoughts. <laughs> um, well, I, I think you gave it to us in the form of quality. Like, I think we're, uh, we're often really uh, distracted by just the need for more and more and more. Um, if you as a comms professional are feeling like those hits are harder to come by, you're not alone. If there's one thing coming out of the report, um, you know, it's that the whole thing is kind of constraining toward quality. There are fewer journalists, their jobs are harder. Um, they're the whole fate of the business model that supports journalism is just as uncertain as it's been for a long time, perhaps even less certain. So um, I do think that maybe that last point is just um empathize with the journalists and the publishers because um, they there's a lot more of us than there are of them. There's fewer and fewer of them 
uh, there's in some cases less and less uh, opportunity to do great work um, in the way that you traditionally are used to it. But if you can, if you see a really good journalist um, setting up a Substack, go work with that. You know, get them the sourcing, send some sponsorship revenue their way. Um, I think it's in our interest to help support the work that journalists do um, as they figure out how to monetize their work. Mm-hmm. And if you come at it understanding that that monetization for journalism is an open question, is something that is not decided, is something that's almost in crisis, um, and understand that it's not just that individual journalist, but the, the very business model that supports that journalism is something that people are working really hard to save. Um, and if all of that rolls up to um, sort of a more empathetic and maybe more engaged approach with, with journalists, um, I think, well, I know they'd appreciate it, um, <laughs> but, I th- but I think that it, it, it'll benefit your agency um, in the form of more quality relationships and, and ultimately better outcomes for your clients. Thank you very much, Alex. We are all in it together as we figure it out. So um, Alex Wolf from Broadsheet Communications. I am Megan Keoghan with the Provoke Media Podcast, and we thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.